This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'm just going to begin. Uh, sorry, a few minutes late. So I hope this topic is somewhat accessible. Um, I'm joined together several texts, homilies, and reflections from the Enerationes and Psalmos uh, and his homilies on the first epistle of John. Not that this matters, but so it's clear. But they're all from the same time, roughly 406, 407. Um, the title, of course, is The Totus Christus, The Grace of the Whole Christ. And I hope over the course of this to actually outline what Augustine thinks more than just say what it is. But of course, totus Christus, the whole Christ, or sometimes the totum corpus, the whole body. I want to first gesture at a reading we had yesterday uh, from Blessed Isaac of Stella. And you heard a lot of this imagery actually uh, come through in that. And hopefully that's one thing you'll, you'll notice is how prevalent this is throughout the Catholic tradition um, in some way, though with sharpening and qualification, the Catholic understanding of the Church owes very much to what St. Augustine says here. So I'm going to approach this through the Psalms at first, where Augustine asked the question, who is speaking in the Psalms? And the answer to this for Augustine is, of course, Christ, and yet us. He says, Christ did not disdain to assume us into himself. He did not disdain to transfigure us into himself and to speak our words, loqui verbis nostris, so that we would speak his very words. This Augustine calls a wonderful exchange, this divine commercial deal, the changing of the things in this world by the heavenly dealer that Christ in the Incarnation has joined head and body, bridegroom and bride. He says, so that son, the Son of God, who became Son of Man for our sake, makes us, who are children of men, children of God. So who is speaking when we pray the Psalms? I hope it's somewhat clear, I'll, I'll emphasize this again and again. Christ and yet us. The whole Christ, then, the totus Christus, is one single voice because there is one body. So the head and body speak as one. He has this quote when he's asking this, who speaks? He says, quote, we all unquestionably said it with him. Without him, we are nothing. But in him, we too are Christ. End quote. By being incorporated into Christ, in a way, we speak with Christ. Christ has spoken our words. The church speaks. But how does this happen? Augustine emphasizes what he calls the bond of charity. He says, Were it not for the body's linkage with its head through the bond of charity, so close a link that head and body speak as one. He gives the example that you may think of from Acts when Saul asks, or Saul is asked, why do you persecute me? Who is the me when Saul is persecuting the Christians? It is truly me, or Christ, who is being persecuted. For as the church is, his body is persecuted, so is Christ. So charity ensures this close connection. It binds together in unity. It embraces unity. And in unity, it preserves the charity which binds it, and charity brings us all to glory. Very beautifully, and, you know, if possible, I hope one day all of you will read it, he gives some examples of Christ speaking as the church, because Christ speaks in her confusio. Christ speaks in anger, with our anger, in our persecution, in our temptations, perhaps, as Father Hofer has discussed, in our anxiety. Like Christ speaks 
as we speak. He says, I say to you, Christ is speaking here in the prophet. No, I would dare to go further and say simply, Christ is speaking. He's going to say certain things in this psalm that we might think inappropriate to Christ. This is such a condescension that it is Christ who is speaking. And then he continues, Yet it is Christ who is speaking, because in the members of Christ, there is Christ. I want you to understand that head and body together are called one Christ. To explain this some, it kind of draws on some of what was said last night and some gestured at today. Augustine sort of flips this image around very beautifully to describe how this happens. How do we speak as one? Well, the church eats us. The church consumes us. Our incorporation, a nice word, but literally, right, to be brought into the body, is because the church devours. And there's something very powerful about this image. Obviously, if you think of the image of Satan as the lion roaming. Like, in fact, we usually, I, let's just say we, I, would tend to think of the church as something static, right, a tranquil garden or pond. And there is that imagery, so I'm not from the Song of Songs. But that the church devours people, devours you, and consumes you. It is the church that consumes you into Christ. There's something to note here. This isn't as if you just willfully ascend, uh, assent to join a group. This isn't like you submit an application. There's something... Sorry. There's something here that is happening. That Christ, the church, is actually drawing you in. Of course, this is maybe helpful to give some examples of what the church is not. But it isn't a club. It isn't a, an ensemble at a university that you join. It doesn't have a charter that you agree to or not. It isn't a nation where you are strangely born under rules that you don't make, but nonetheless are apart by birthright or whatnot. Right? It is a thing, well, the body, that consumes you. Or that consumes the Christian. That's how you're made one. There isn't something intrinsic then to the individual. The decision that I, I don't want to totally do away with this, but it isn't something that you then decide to do. Right? This can only be affected by the whole Christ, head and body. Augustine so sees the body of Christ everywhere that he turns to the church in the Old Testament. And he says, the body was openly proclaimed. Like scripture openly proclaims the body. Whereas Christ is referred to in prophecy. It's sort of adumbrated. The body is explicitly discussed. The body is revealed before the head is here. Before Christ, in the sense, is known in the flesh. And he says this like with Abraham. And of course his sacrifice and and the whole thing surrounding it. That... In Abraham, Christ is proclaimed. Right? You see the Christological imagery. But the church is talked about or discussed openly for all to see. He says, no sooner had the head been foretold than the body must be too. In a sense, always present is the full Christ. Like, if you think of this as a way of reading scripture, that it's not just like Isaiah points to the incarnation. Like always the whole Christ, the body, always present with the head. He actually discusses why people do not see the church. It's those who do not see the church that can't see Christ. And he says, for they did not want to be saved gratis by grace. To make this clear, like why do some not see? Because they wouldn't, they could not perceive a body that is formed by God. Like that is something like if it's a group of people that all get together because of their moral righteousness, that makes sense to us. But a group, a ragtag group brought together by God's act, right, one can't perceive that. They can't see it. So then they cannot see the head because they can't understand or they can't perceive the body. So in a way, Augustine has a threefold account of Christ. Christ is truly man, truly human. Christ is truly God. And yet 
Christ is truly the church. And this draws from St. Athanasius. It's, it's very beautiful how this is all woven together. But in a way, we can speak of Augustine's Christology as always including the church. And he goes on to note then how the church and grace are sort of woven together. He takes the image of the casting of lots. Right, you know, the casting of lots are the die to, to, to win things and how this is random. Because what we can't see is that grace is not for sale. It's God's will, not our merits. This is all the seamless tunic of the Lord. It can't be parsed out. It can't be won. There's heavenly charity that will last forever. He says, quote, Everyone in whom the Savior has found nothing to crown, but only what he must condemn, one in whom he has found nothing that deserves rewards, but only what merits torments. The body consumes. So the church's inheritance, its very being, if you will, as the body, is a gift. And it's hard to understand this gift. And I just give a, a sort of, gift is such a fraught term, and I know it has a whole phenomenological range in these things. But I would just say, I think of gift, I think of birthday or something, which I take, I merit. Right? I know we don't say that, but you kind of do, right? You owe me something. And I take Christmas to be the same, right? You open up a bunch of socks, and you think I've been better than that this year. <laughs> so it's hard to understand what a gift is. Right? It's something that you haven't deserved. Right? If it's just judging what you have gotten by surprise, though you earned it, it isn't a gift. That the church's inheritance is given by the head, and that the members are incorporated, devoured by Christ. Like that is a gift. And it points to Augustine's understanding and sort of the inseparability of the work of Christ and of the church. The work of Christ is gratuitous, with the church, is in a sense operative. Like it works. It's not just a gift that then you open and assemble. And it is efficacious in that it accomplishes its end. It is more than just something set there for you to decide what to do. Like, again, if you think of the church as devouring, you kind of see what Augustine is getting at. Now, these are all his reflections on the 30th Psalm. And I want to make, give more shade to the Christological dimension by his reflection, a very beautiful one, on Psalm 119, which is, of course, a psalm of ascent and the gratus of the ascent. <clears throat> this is the valley of our mourning that Christ descends into. And he connects this descent, Christ, the incarnation, and the valley of our weeping, you will, that Christ suffered so that we might ascend the mountain. But then he goes on to discuss what this might mean, part of what Christ's descent is. And I just throw this out because I think it's remarkably beautiful. But all the, the language that we use to describe, all the revealed text in Scripture, a stone, a lion, a lamb, all of these things are descent. Because obviously God is more and not those things. Right? For God to be called a stone to take up the image of a lion or even a devouring one is a kind of condescension, a lowering. None of those really get at it. It says, none of these things are in fact God, but omnia factus as prote, all of these things he has done for you. So even reading scripture, you see God's descent. And this applies to the church in a very beautiful way. But I want to like shift with this. As Augustine says, quote, Christ also, by being born and suffering, made himself such that people could talk about him. For humans easily talk about another human being. The point of this descent of Christ is that he doesn't tie the descent of Christ simply to then one's ascent. Because in the Psalm 119, as he talks, the Psalm talks about those ascending and descending, he asks, then, who is it that descends? I think this is very beautiful, but it ties into hopefully what we're talking about. It does. I hope beyond hope. He asks, why do then some go down? The ones going down are not falling, but descending. 
These are ones in the body imitating Christ. Because of the one who descended, many also descend adnos, to us. Like his image of the descent of Christ, of course, uplifts in the body, the whole. Then those, it's not just about ascent to God, the mind to the one, but rather an imitation of Christ, those in the church in a certain sense, the saints, they descend. And he, atta- he attaches the growth here very beautifully to the Eucharist. He says, take up that which was made for you so that you will grow to that which is the same added cordest. Ascent is not alone. Ascent is not simply speaking the goal. It is, but you understand, it's not just you're getting up and out. And so he actually applies the imagery here in the psalm of the arrows and the coals as the saints of God, the little words, the verbi dei, or transformed, the exempla, the individuals, the different members of the church. Christ, in a sense, shoots them out so that one loves to aid the lover. Like how we are transformed in Christ. And he emphasizes this, both with the image of the pilgrim and the peregrinatio, the journey. He says it's not of simply the individual, but of the whole church. Like those in the church are devoured into Christ. And in a sense, they become to use a superficial image, but nonetheless, the hands and feet of this, of Christ in the world. And so he says about this journey, it is not I, it is not you, it is not that one, but rather from the ends of the earth, that very whole church, the whole inheritance of Christ cries out. He then says, omne sancti, all of the holy, or unos homo, one man. In Christo, in Christ. Because this holy unity is in Christ. So even this peregrination, it's not simply that we're devoured to ascend, but rather devoured to, in a sense, bear witness. He turns here then to what true peace would be. He says, the heart cries out for peace. We must love peace. We must love Christ in unity. We find peace, in a sense, in our head. But we find true pox in unity. And he contrasts this with the Donatist. And I guess I'll say something I realize most people don't know about them. It, it, this is a bit of a cliche, but the Donatists were a sectarian group in North Africa at Augustine's time. Obviously, they go back to the Diocletian persecution. Uh, And at least as they're criticized, it seems true enough, they privilege purity, like moral purity, sacramental purity in a sense, a church of the pure. And he criticizes these ones because he says that they seek purity at the expense of charity. What they reject, of course, is grace. In a sense, they earn. They preserve their own purity. They make their own peace. Augustine says to love peace is to love unity. To love that which Christ has made one from two. Or from many. The Donatists privilege purity. And such a pure unity. The unity that they make. Whereas the body consumed, the body that is consuming, has peace and purity because of her head. I want to then shift in this sort of weave to the homilies on 1 John. And I won't give much at all of the context, but it takes up this similar theme here and asks the question when he begins these homilies, what it is to see and touch the Lord. And he discusses how, or he says how, that the things which can be seen by the heart alone may also be seen by the eyes, so that it may heal hearts. And he emphasizes the martyrs and the witnesses. Especially, they touch the man, they touch Christ, but they confess God. The martyrs point to the one who healed them, and the very eating of the bread of the angels. The witnesses then testify, not alone or individually, 
They point to the head and the body. These witnesses are not an accident of Christ. They're not just ones who have assented uh, to a proclamation, a Nicene proclamation, which I want to get at. They have been transformed, and they now point. Like a witness testifies to this. They testify to Christ. Why? Because Christ showed himself openly in the sun, taking from Proverbs. He showed himself in the marriage bed, Augustine says, of the virgin's womb, to be both bridegroom and groom, to be both Christ and the church. The witnesses, these martyrs, the holy, they actually testify to the fullness of Christ in the Son, head and body. They don't point to simply intellectual assent. The witnesses to the bridegroom are also witnesses to the bride. The witnesses are then to the word and flesh and the church and Christ. There's an implication here of the witness that seen alone is not believing. And I want, I'll say this again later, but part of this is that the Donatists are actually a Nicene group. They confess the true divinity of Christ. But yet, in a sense, he's saying they don't see Christ. Well, they don't believe Christ. They see only what they want. They somehow can say they see the head without the body. And Augustine is actually saying that seeing alone, if you want, is not itself believing. He emphasizes this fellowship then between God and man is the same that is the fellowship within the body. Christ was born for us and he suffered for us. So we have fellowship with God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. And one thing he highlights, which I just... This is a part of an aside, but I just find it so beautiful and it weaves in, I think, well enough. The beauty of confession. And yes, we could take this as how sacramentally is he referring to this. But what confession is, how charity is linked with confession, because confession is to receive and to give. And I just use the image now, like going to confession is not simply to offload one's problems. Right? And it also is a strange act because, in a sense, you know, if truthful, you're going to be forgiven. So why do it? But what confession is, is actually to talk with, of course, if we take the simple Latin for it. But also, it is an act of love to be joined in love. And there's a lot that you could take from you know, the rest, sort of receiving again, if you want, of the theological virtues and of charity. But he points to confession here in part because the Donatist, if you will, need not confess, like confess sins, do they have any, etc. But also what it entails, confession is of loving exchange for and in unity. This, I, I actually would normally say, does this make sense? But I would take it, it doesn't. And so he says, confession above all, therefore, and then love, because what has been said of charity, charity covers a multitude of sins. Uh, this very act, and it goes to his writing of the confessions, but we can, I think, take it fairly enough to the sacrament of confession. Reconciliation still works. Of what this entails and how this actually points to, well, the whole Christ. We're actually saying, speaking our unity in that very act. <clears throat> in contrast to this, Augustine highlights pride and humility. Well, pride and contrast, humility. Pride turns one away from God. One away from head and body. One sees only what Augustine says, the partial view. There is actually a suspicion, if you will, of the body. Rather than a suspicion of the self. Humility allows one in charity to see the whole the whole Christ, that it isn't one something that one has earned, it is something given to be a member of the whole Christ. Only in humility can you see that you did not deserve, and that in a sense, 
you have been devoured. But in pride, you think, I have, I have earned this. The church is something constituted in a way by my morality or my shared intellectual uh, colleagues. We make this body. He says, if we want even a perfect view, it is to love one's enemies and to love them to the degree that they may be brothers. Like to truly see the whole Christ is to see that Christ was on the cross even for his enemies. This is the way of charity. And then he points to what is the darkness of First John when it refers to the darkness and scandal. The first is to hate what is the light. There's those who hate both Christ and the church. And there are those then who see oneself as the light. In a sense, Christ is benefiting from me. Christ would have no body if it weren't for me. And this is a way, actually, the way of breaking charity for Augustine. It is schism. If Christ benefits from me, then I form, in a sense, my own body. In a way, I need no head. In contrast to this, I think sometimes of this uh, attribution given to Teresa or Teresa of Avila, but Christ has no body but. Sort of a contrast, a very beautiful poem. I won't go, or, or that'll be a poem, tribute to her. But there's a way in which that actually means something different from what the Donatists are arguing and how they fracture the whole Christ. In the next homily in this series, the second one, Augustine discusses the marriage of the church. What is beautiful about this is those who attend the marriage are themselves the bride. Okay, this is, of course, a very sacramental image. It's also very Eucharistic. For the whole church, he says, is the bride of Christ, whose origin and first fruits are the flesh of Christ. There the bride is joined to her bridegroom in the flesh. Right, the perfect purpose, in a sense, of the incarnation is for Christ to take up a body. And that means, obviously, the incarnation itself, but the church as well. The bride is joined to her bridegroom in the flesh. And so he says to reject the sacraments, baptism, Eucharist, they reject the sacraments of they whom they confess. And in rejecting this, they kill Christ and other people. Why? Because they kill unity. But they also, they reject grace. To understand the sacraments not as simply uh, satellites, sort of orbiting, maybe effectively to draw you into the planet of Christ, but rather as bound with the incarnation of Christ and the whole Christ, is something that Augustine is strongly uh, outlining in these homilies. And you begin, I think, to see what it means to effectively reject Christ. He says, quote, confess and embrace, for they were afraid because of their wickedness, but you must love the one who forgives your wickedness. This deep communion, because Christ pitched his tent in the open, was that Christ died for us, was crucified for us, was, came so that the body would be made whole and pure, right, again, came to consume us. And an image of this, which sort of gets at what I only gestured at, the suspicion of the self, is how through the water and the spirit to be reborn in baptism makes the radis, the radix caritatis, right, the root of love. And I'd say this because I know, first, you're probably not Floridians, but, you know, rad or radical right, comes from root. It used to be something that meant more. I think it means nothing now. Mm-hmm. But, right, it was like a purple mohawk. I mean, it was something that was completely different. And this idea of the radical, the root of charity, is this idea in a sense that so much as you actually claim yourself to be God, it's plucked up. And a new root, one of charity and unity, is planted. This new root 
is through the cross. He says, hold on to the wood. Hold on to the wood that is the cross. There's a deep suspicion of the self for Augustine. And this is perhaps something that is remarkable in modernity because there's a passionate love of ourselves and a deep suspicion of others. The fear of heteronomy, et cetera, et cetera, if you know these things. Uh, But actually... To have a suspicion of oneself and one's agency to attain to be God in a sense or to attain to God, to merit God's love. Right? Augustine is militating against this, a new root found not because of one's confidence in oneself, but because of what God affects through grace, through his whole body. And of course here he has these beautiful lines that for your sake, he became temporal in such a way as to remain eternal. Something of time was added to him. Nothing of eternity was withdrawn. It's complicated. But also, this new root is because the Lord poured out his blood on our behalf, he redeemed us. He transformed our hope. Like we have a new root, a new hope, a new love. So to this, I hope, something that will close the whole thing in, Augustine then approaches what you see in First John about Antichrist. Right? Who or what are Antichrist? And of course, the simple thing is, right, they're contra Christus, or I'm sorry, with the declension of Christum. They're against Christ. He says, for he who isn't contrary to Christ remains in his body and is considered his member. The body's wholeness depends on all of its members. The harmony of the members does not allow for antichrist. A, a, a quick gesture at the answer as I work it out is to say that those against Christ are those against his body. They reject Christ, his inheritance, right? They may, in a sense, see Jesus, but they reject the Christ, his inheritance for all of this. They reject the wholeness of it. They reject why Christ has come in the, fe- in the flesh. And he turns to this verse, 1 John two nineteen, and says, quote, They left us, but they were not of us, because if they had been of us, they would certainly have remained with us. <coughs> what they reject is Christ which is the name, he says, of a sacrament, a mystery. They deny Christ, which is to say they reject Christ's body. They reject the unity of Christ's inheritance. He says, we have the Lord himself risen from the dead, who offered himself to the hands of this doubting disciple to be touched. Like Christ came, in a sense, to take up a body. So who denies Christ? Augustine says, let let us pay attention to deeds. Those who deny Christ reject the anointing that is charity, that will be like a root. They reject Christ's, the, the incorporation, the devouring of the church in her baptism. They reject the sacrament of charity in the Eucharist. And this is an interesting question of what does the Eucharist mean to a Donatist? They reject in a sense that Christ has come in the flesh. These are the Antichrists who deny Christ, came in the flesh, they deny it by their deeds. And so he asks, let us ask why Christ has come in the flesh, and find who denies that he has come in the flesh. They deny by their deeds, because they deny or reject Christ. I don't know if this makes sense, but of course the Donatists, they don't actually reject the divinity of Christ. They don't reject Nicaea. But he's saying to reject the church, the whole Christ, is in effect to reject Christ. Like charity led Christ to the flesh. And so therefore, whoever does not have charity denies that Christ has come in the flesh, he says. He says specifically to the Donatist, Christ dies for us. He taught us charity. He says, quote, you do not have charity because for the sake of your honor, You cause division and unity. He says, you are tearing to pieces the body of Christ. He came in the flesh so as to bring together. You are crying out so as to scatter it. And a very significant thing he does is highlight the difference of the verbs used here. He changes what sort of variant in Latin, negare, right? And you think of words like negation or deny. And he shifts this because another variant has sovere. You think of dissolve, right, as intensifying that. And so the verse reads with solvere, 
And every spirit that dissolves the fact that Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. Christ, he says, came to gather. You came to dissolve. How do you not deny that Christ has come in the flesh? You who break up the church of God that he has gathered. You dissolve Jesus and you deny that he has come in the flesh. Save the polemical dimension of this, which I hope only illuminates part of what he's discussing, of this whole Christ, that we are devoured and united as one. But that you can't understand Christ, not only his works and effects, without the church. It's not a mere instrument. Like the purpose of the incarnation is to take up a body, to incorporate. So it is the whole Christ, the church, that cannot be separated from her head. It is not simply a thought experiment. Like Christianity is not a question of simply, how did God become man? Or even more puzzling, how a trinity? The Donatists have what we would say is an orthodox answer to that. Kind of. The whole Christ is head and body united. To dissolve the body is to reject Christ. And this is then to reject the grace of Christ, the gift of our incorporation, and of course, the peace of Christ. A peace that somehow takes place in our own devouring. Thank you. Yes, yes. Um, well, you use the term devouring a lot. Yes, I just like that. that <laughs> but it is used. But I just I find that like it sticks with you when you think of it this way. I'd never thought of the church this way. Is it just referring to sort of devouring food, or is there an implication of fire here? Because I know that uh, of I'm sorry, fire. Fire. Yes. Okay. I know it. Uh, uh, food. In, in some writings, um, the Holy Spirit is described as this fire that it just. You cannot survive that fire. It just comes and you... Yeah, so the image of fire is also used in other places and in some of these. Just note there's the sense of the refining fire Mm. because it has to be contrasted in this imagery with the fire that, in a sense, sort of eradicates. There's the whole image there of, like, the whole world burning and, and some of them have this. So, but it is, yes. But the devouring you get, and it's somewhat, maybe grace but the whole image yesterday of christ uh, augustine wanting to consume like you see that this is the problem like he wants to consume instead of be consumed and this is what christ is doing like taking up a body he's consuming us like the church is consuming us it's eating us uh i just think this is very beautiful uh it may be frightening but <laughs> the fire is also frightening but i i don't know which one i'd prefer honestly eating fire Yes. Um, so, so Augustine's largely, by and large, I know this is sort of controversial, but Augustine, by and large, supported the coercive suppression of Donatism. <laughs> Go there. Uh, and and I would well, and and I, I was just wondering if if you could comment on how that kind of and I'm not I'm not trying to like say that this is wrong. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily wrong. I'm just trying to understand how. That kind of um, that th- that that kind of violent suppression of Don has fits in with this scheme of charity. I think it can. I'm just oh yeah yeah. Uh, I mean, there's many things around this. That I would say first, of course, the suppression. <clears throat> they both appeal to the the, the Roman court. The Donatists actually initiate this appeal. So uh, part of this is supporting the Roman state to shut it down. The conflict, if you know, is it's pretty bad. I mean, one of Augustine's friends, Evodius, they seem to have poured acid on him, and he kind of disappears for something like 17 years, and he's limping around. Um, there's, so it's, it's, it's that on the ground is itself a real problem. There's numerous throughout letters and these things of uh, people that are beaten, killed, and maimed, and these things. Um, that doesn't get to the answer of justifying it. It's just they appeal to the Roman state. The Roman state is the one. And Augustine, of course, beseeches them not to be executed. Um, now, to the issue of coercion versus correction and these things. There is something that shifts at this time. You know, it's a it's a bit in contrast to what's said. I mean, the imperial dimension of Christianity really doesn't take full effect till the, the mid-400s. 
And people locate this with Theodosius, but this is not right. I mean, there, there's, you can see this if you want, the treatment of Manichaeus, for example. Like they just start walking about in the middle of the 390s, and then by 404, they're in shackles. I mean, things have changed. Um, and part of that uh, is sort of the imperial apparatus. And Augustine's view, somewhat argued there's no dimension of that earlier, but there is a sense of at least on the individual level, right, of his toothache. And these sort of things actually prompt change. And there is a sense of correction uh, that moves one to God. But the corporate force, uh, the imperial force to do this, like, yes. I mean, I, I, there's no way around it as a modern to say that this is something that you'd want to do. There are reasons that make sense for the peace of society and the peace of the church. But there is a sense here of the peace of society. The other thing is often overstated. This, let's say, negotiated rapprochement is actually fairly effective. Uh, Donatism, there are some references here and there, and people make much of it. But in fact, after the Vandals, there's this little reference in Pope Gregory the Great, but there's nothing. Uh, Many of the bishops do rejoin. So there's actually, effectively, a lot of this is harmonized. Um, Again, this is maybe to make it all too particular, abstract, but there's no way around that I at least... It's hard to say coerciveness is something that, uh, in that way, something we would prefer, uh, desire, think is even right. But, of course, by God's grace, there's nothing that impedes that. Right? Yes? Um, well, kind of going off that, my idea of Augustine's disposition towards the Donatists was, well, he tried to present himself as being like gentler than the, um, the Donatists and not promoting uh, you know, kind of like rioting, like yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, did to the Catholic churches. But my um, my question uh, is this idea of like um, devouring, um, like entering into the church through devouring. Um, could, you, could you kind of contrast that with like the role of the Virgin Mary in the church and how I, I know like. The kind of burning bush has been like a type of the Virgin Mary, and how like the divine fire that doesn't cons- the divine fire like doesn't consume or doesn't destroy yeah. the bush in the same way as like Mary receiving the word, you know that that divinity doesn't kind of um, eradicate her, her, her because of her, and her purity. But but so in that way, it seems kind of like the devouring or you know it's sort of reversed because she is receiving um she's receiving christ so how how does like how and i know mary is kind of like a type of the church too but how does like christ sort of devour his his mother i guess and what is her role vis-a-vis the the church too so the devouring if it takes place of first mary is devoured right i mean that's the sense like all all are brought in to Christ, like they're devoured by the church, including Mary. And of course, some of this, like Augustine, when he talks about the Blessed Mother, does not, um, you know, her sinlessness and these things, except Mary, when you talk about original sin, there's something special about this. Um, so that part, I hope, makes sense. As far as Mary as an image of the church, you, you see this as this image of the mother church, which is, of course, a very North African thing. Uh, we have the baptistries where, where they look like you're, you're walking through uh, the birth canal. And uh, Mary fits that imagery uh, very well, just the mother who gives birth uh, to the, the pure mother who gives birth, the fecund, uh, chaste mother. And, and that, that type is one of the earlier ones you have of Mary in North Africa. Um, and... Yeah, this is a huge, that, that, that imagery in sense, the Mater uh, Ecclesia, is one that is profoundly North African. In fact, the first reference is Tertullian to that. Uh, there's a vague reference in the Martyrs of Lyon, but uh, that's not maybe giving all of the answer because so much is a continued reflection on the Blessed Mother. Uh, so just for Augustine, Mary images the grace received, and yet also how she is the fecund mother and all, in a way that Christ is brought to us through her. And I, I take a very Augustine image to be like St. Bernard. He has Mary as the aqueduct. Right? She's the one who gives 
the waters of life to everyone. And you have sometimes Mary as the neck. Uh, so I don't know if that's answering all of it because there's so much around Mary to, to, to really discuss. But for Augustine, it all fits in the imagery directing with this is how she is a type of the church as she offers life to us in Christ. But then she also is united to the body because of Christ. And this is partly how the Catholic conception is parsed out. So I, we would talk about this later if you like, because there's so much there. And I don't know if you have more to ask, because I, I feel like I'm doing that. Yeah, maybe you could. So, so. Maybe if I think of something else, can you stop there? Okay. Is there a distinction between the idea of devouring and then another question? Yes, kind of. So I want the devouring, why I like the image so much in relation to this, is it just shows you God's activity. Whereas participation always sounds very nice. I mean, my, my boys, I missed it, but two of my boys are playing soccer today, and right, everyone gets to participate, and everyone, we just think it's nice. Uh, and mathesis, sort of the Greek thing, it means a little bit more. It's a sort of a, to me, it's used more vaguely in a lot of this uh, literature surrounding this. So, but no, there is no doubt. That's why I tried to shift with the images of the witnesses, of the martyrs, the ones who are descending. Like they're descending because they're now imitating Christ. And so they're devoured. So you don't think, well, they were just great and they did it on their own. Rather, they're devoured. In a sense, now they're descending the members of Christ, to those still also here who are in the church and struggling or in the church and, you know, this dimension. So absolutely, participation. But I just don't want to put that in the primary place because that is a term used usually of how there's a, a simple connection, sometimes even univocal, between the divine mind, and let's say Plotinus, and then God. We participate because the divine is in us, right? That's not what's happening. We participate because... Were devoured. Is that? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking of like we exist as in like all we exist first, and that existence is in itself participating, and that existence is already. If you can't necessarily devour something, you existed first, you know, from thing. Yeah, I so. That's right. As opposed to if you understand being as like the first mode of participation. But I would just note that that's true, but a necessary gloss on this is what is meant by being for someone like Porphyry uh, is actually to be actualized. Right? So then even being as such in its participation is actual. And then when we actually existentially live, we're sort of attenuating real existence. Does it make sense? So some of this is actually trying to clarify what Augustine is doing, and I'm, I'm trying to do this in the back of my mind, uh, is provide what Augustine's focusing on in our participation. But you're right, absolutely. As such, as beings, we participate in God. But then this is just actively, uh, intentionally. Absolutely. I'm sorry. I mean, this is like a very similar question, but... Um, yeah, so like you talk about, you talk about our inheritance um, that was won for us by Christ dying on the cross, that which we have not earned in any way, but which has been given to us. Um, and this like gift of grace is a language that's pretty familiar to I'm sure many of us. Um, but another thing I've heard of like, and again, this, this is probably along the same lines as that last question, but it's like our, our heavenly, like our reward. Um, and yeah, that, that, like, word reward just kind of suggests that there, it was in some way, like, uh, merited. But note, though, who was the reward? It's Christ's reward. That's first. I mean, <clears throat> it's Christ's reward. So then we are given it by Christ. Okay. So then, yes, and there's a lot in Dominicans, in fact, a lot of this with the way in which merit through grace and Christ actually is worked out in St. Thomas. But... Uh, <laughs> I would just say that, yes, inheritance, but it's, in some sense, we're adopted into that inheritance. So, yes? Uh, at the risk of sabotaging the answer, how would you say that uh, Augustine, 
So, at the risk of aggravating, <laughs> what I would say is, like, I am a lay Catholic with five children, and I care about my children. So I'm not very ecumenically um, aimed, but I should be. But does that make sense? So in one way, what Augustine actually challenges uh, is to actually care about this. And I mean, I care about my children selfishly. But I want them to be formed in the church, raised. And this is what I want. Uh, and so often it's the religious and clerics who care more about this stuff as us who raise children. It's just like, no, I don't want to deal with all of this argument. You've got to learn this stuff first and live it. Um, but Augustine, if that makes sense, actually to me is a challenge, a, a call to care about such unity. Uh, Catholics should care about unity. Like they should care about it deeply as Christ cares about it. Um, even though for me, again, like it's sort of like, ah, no. Um, you know, how the particulars of this, it's really complicated. Of course, like the different groups east, the, the Greek churches and uh, or the whole eastern churches and then the Protestants. It's, it's very complicated that I, I, don't, I don't know much about different groups, honestly. So for that, there are other people to turn to. But I think that in a strange way, though, it seems maybe triumphalistic against another kind of uh, notion of the church as community or what schism means, it should sort of be a, a pain in the heart. Like this is what Christ is doing, the church is consuming, but this whole body, this understanding of grace, then we should, in a sense, if you will, descend by grace for such unity. So, I mean, I I, I know that it seemed triumphalistic, but that would be the way of pride. Like, yes, I'm in this group that I didn't merit to be in. That's a little disappointing. Right, I mean that's like being in a family. Like, yes, I earned this. So I mean, is that does that make sense? I mean, I think it's actually very beautiful, a certain way. It challenges me at least.